Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. Um, A little bit of... uh Family history for you again this morning. So, Oli, after a long day and eating dinner out, was driving home. And on the way home, a policeman pulled him over. Cherries and berries are rolling. He gets pulled over. And the officer comes up and says, Oli, do you know why I pulled you over? And he says, I have no clue why you pulled me over. He says, because you were swerving all over the road. He says, oh, sorry about that. He says, no. He says, you're going to have to get out and take a breathalyzer. And Oli says, I can't do that. And the police officer says, why can't you do that? He says, because I'm asthmatic. I'll have, a, I'll have an asthma attack, and I'll die right here on the road. So I can't do that. Oh, well, then we'll have to take you down to the police station and do a blood draw. He says, I can't do that either. And why can't you do that? He says, because I'm, I'm hypoglycemic. And I, I will, I'll bleed to death. So, so I can't do that either. So then the officer says, well, if that's the case, then what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get out and you're going to have to walk the white line, one foot in front of the other. When you get to the other end, you have to spin around, take your fingers and touch your nose. And Oli says, I can't do that either. And the officer said, why can't you do that? And Oli said, because I'm drunk. Anyway, just thought I'd catch up on a little family business. You know, uh, and by the way, we need to laugh once in a while in church because I'll t- I'm just going to tell you, life can get way too serious. It's just like if you look what's going on in our world around us, you're just kind of going like, I don't know how much more of this I can take. I mean, there is no good news on the news anymore. It's just, it's depressing and it's overwhelming. That's why... During the 21 days of prayer, I said, I'm going to step away from um, all news things, you know, no articles, no reading news, no newspaper, nothing on the television. I'm not going to get involved in anything in social media. And by the way, since I've had that fast from social media, I really don't think I'm going to go back. And so if you're one of the 6,000 people that have said, I want to be your friend, and I've never confirmed that, it's never going to happen. We'll just have to be friends face to face, okay? So those things are going on. But what I learned while I was AWOL from all that stuff is that life continued on without me. I mean, things went crazy while I was not paying attention to what was going on in this world. There were all kinds of evil events that have taken place in Afghanistan. I mean, just yesterday we celebrated. I don't know how you celebrate it, but we remembered 9-11. And the the tragedy that hit our country and how we've responded and how we've come back from that. And yet we seem to turn around and we've got more stuff like that going on in our world. And so it really is depressing. It's quite unnerving to think about all this stuff that's going on. Matter of fact, it almost makes a person feel like there's no hope. It's hopeless in all the evil that's taking place in the world. Not only that, but we've just come out of this ugliness of the pandemic. 
And, and the pandemic did a lot of things to our nation and to us as, as we've watched the things have taken place. There's the physical devastation of everything that is associated with the pandemic. And by the way, the pandemic was a lab-created kind of a thing. And so it, there wasn't an accident. I really don't believe there was an accident. But so it, it's, it's brought physical devastation to a lot of people. And, and there are so many people that died and those deaths could have been prevented. Then there's the emotional anguish. I mean, sending kids to school with masks on and telling them to distance and you can't talk to your friends. The fear that that brought into children. The fear it brought into parents that maybe their kids tested positive for COVID and now the whole family's locked down for what, 28 days? Something like that, right? Yeah, that, that's not a fun time. I don't care who you are. That's just not, and, and so there's this emotional anguish that comes with it. We've, we've had this, this thing come that it incites fear. I mean, the fear of it all, that, that's all going through. So you have, you have the physical trauma, you have the emotional trauma, you have the mental thing, trying to get your head wrapped around this thing of wearing a mask and having conversations with people who all you can do is see their eyes and you've, they've lost all their body expression so you really don't know what they're really communicating to you. Because we communicate 90% with body communication. Our faces do more communication than our words. And we lost all of that. And it was hard. It was horrible. It was difficult. Nobody likes it. And we're still not certain of what the future holds in it. And, and, and this whole thing has come along. And what it's done is it's created a, a deeper divide in our nation. It's even caused a divide within political parties. It, it, you know, with what's going on in our country. It, it's caused a divide among family members. It's caused deep divide and raw emotions in school districts. I mean, the, the, the result of the pandemic, we think of it on this kind of level. We think of it physically, emotionally, um, and mentally. But the reality is, and I believe this to be true, and this is my opinion, but it's something I've been watching take place, is that what we've been experiencing is by far more of a spiritual thing than it is a physical thing. Let me explain that to you. Because what's happened with the pandemic and what's happened with this is now churches all across the country are divided. Do we wear a mask? Don't we wear a mask? If you want to come to church, you're required to wear a mask. I'm not going to church anymore. Do we socially distance? Do we split our church into like five different services on a Saturday and Sunday so that we only have 15 or 20 people attending a service and it divides the church? I'm not coming back to church until this church gets it right that we're not going to be in close proximity to one another. Then there's the whole issue of vaccinations. Are we going to get vaccinated? Aren't we going to get vaccinated? Is this vaccination from the devil? Is it going to be the mark of the beast? Let me just set your hearts at ease. It's not going to be that easy. It's not. This is not the mark of the beast. You know, uh, you'll know when it comes. Believe me, this is not it. But what it's done is it's caused, caused this spiritual divide within the church. Churches have split. Churches have closed down. 
People are angry at each other. Because here's what happened, is the enemy of our soul, who has one, he has a three-pronged approach for your life. It's to rob, kill, and destroy anything that God would do in your life. That's his goal. And by the way, he's a jerk about it. He don't play nice. He got no rules. So he's going to take every advantage of anything he can get a hold of to cause a disruption with, with, within the body of Christ and what God's trying to do through the church and what is God trying to do in the church. He's trying to find the people who are lost and, and give them hope. He wants to bring salvation to those who are perishing. He wants to redeem the hearts of men and women and children out of the pit of despair. That's the message God has for the world. But the church is so busy fighting about a pandemic that the enemy is, is just fueling it a little bit. And he's causing people to get all stirred up. And he's causing people to be angry with each other. And this whole thing is just blown way out of proportion and unfortunately the church has bought into it and we have lost two things we have lost our first love our passion for Jesus and the second thing we have lost is what Christ has called us to do his mandate to the church we've lost those two things so the devil's going like, I don't have to worry about anything. I just let the church implode on itself and just sit back and watch people go to hell because the church has lost its mission. Now, this isn't the first time the church has ever gone through something like this. It's the first time in my lifetime. The very first time this happened, it's recorded in the Gospel of Acts, the story of the birth of the church. And there came a point when the church was exploding and the growth was astronomical. Um, you just remember Peter's first sermon. He preached his first sermon and the people said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that very first sermon. 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus and were baptized in that morning. That's like, blow your mind, that's what we want here, right? Amen, Jesus. Bring it again. And then later on, not far from that, they gave another gospel message and 5,000 people gave their lives to Christ. I mean, the church in Jerusalem was just exploding. And so then all of a sudden, the gospel message gets taken out to the Gentiles. You know who the Gentiles are? You are. That's right. Look at your, your neighbor and go, you're a good-looking Gentile. <coughs> no, I meant it. I need a drink. Go ahead and say that. <laughs> so what was happening then when the Gentiles came to faith, because this started with the disciples. They were all Hebrews, Jews. It started with the, the Jewish nation. And in Jerusalem, that's where primarily Jews lived. And so when the gospel message went to the Gentiles, all of a sudden the Judaizers back in Jerusalem, the council, they said, if these guys, are, these Gentiles are going to be coming to faith in Christ, they're really not Christ followers until they've been circumcised. So every Gentile that comes to faith in Christ has to get circumcised in order to be a real Christ follower. And Peter and Paul are going like, whoa, 
That's not what the Bible, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a woman or a man, it doesn't matter whether you're free or a slave, everybody is equal at the foot of cross of Christ. That's not what makes you a Christ follower, whether you've been circumcised or not. It's what God has done in your heart and how you've responded to the call of God in your life and you've said yes to Jesus and let him be Lord and Savior of life. That, that's the only thing that is going to save a person in this lifetime. And so the church got put back on track. And then the gospel spread throughout the whole in Roman, the whole Roman Empire, even with the persecution that came after that. You see, if, if you couldn't get the church to, to kill itself by having a squabble over what really makes a person a Christian, then, then Satan's going to go, well, I'm just going to kill them all. And they'll turn because they don't, they're not going to stand for their faith in Jesus. When their life is put on the line, they're going to go like, no, didn't sign up for this. But what Satan didn't know is that because God got a hold of their heart and the Holy Spirit was at work in them, when it came to persecution and they stood there in front of the, the, the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire said, you either turn from, from following Jesus, you deny him, or we're going to burn you at the stake, we'll feed you to the lions, we'll, we'll dismember you, we'll chop you up in little pieces. And, and the, the church said, do your best work. Because in the words of Paul, to live is gain, to die is Christ. That was the mantra of the church. Go ahead, kill me, because guess what? Worst thing for me, oh, I go to heaven and be with Jesus, and I don't have to put up with you fools? Go ahead. I don't care. Kill me. Not a big deal. But here's what, what Paul did. Because he, he understood the importance of the message of the cross. He knew the importance of the empty tomb. So here's what he said he was going to do in 1 Corinthians. He says, When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ, but I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I will share in their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find every common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. In other words, what Paul says he's going to do is he's going to be all things to all people so that he might have a chance to at least win a few to the kingdom of God. That has got to be the attitude of the church. So if I go to somebody's home and I walk up to the door and they say, we really love you, Pastor Ken, so either... We need to meet outside, or could you wear a mask if you're going to come inside? Yeah, I'll put a mask on. I love you guys enough. I'm going to wear a mask. My oldest daughter says, you want to come and hug Priscilla, give her a kiss, and hang out with Everett? You need to get vaccinated. All right. Oh, they didn't do it there. They did it here. <laughs> you get vaccinated. I do it. Why? Not because I'm trying to exercise my rights. Not because I'm trying to lord over somebody. Not because I think I'm holier than somebody else. Not because I'm better than somebody else. I do it because I love those people. I love all of you. Matter of fact, I spent time this morning with about four other people and we prayed for everybody that was going to be here this morning. 
You got prayed for because I believe God's going to do something in your heart. And I, I'm excited to see how he's going to stir up something great in your heart. Because here's the bottom line. What Jesus has called us to do, he's called us to change our world. Do you believe that? Well, you, listen, if you want to get out of here before noon 30, you got to help me out a little bit. So come on, help me out a little, would you? I need some help this morning. So how do, how do we become all things to all people that we might win a few? Well, I want to talk about, because we're still in, this is our last message called Memos from the Throne. And so I really want to help you understand this. And the best way to do it is with my favorite king of Judah, a young guy named Josiah. But before we get to Josiah, you need to know a little bit about his family background, because it's quite amazing what he had to deal with in order to be who he was and go where he, God called him to go. And so in Second Chronicles, we get to know about his great-great-granddaddy. And his name was King Hezekiah. And it says this, Thus King Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Here's a king who's godly. He's going, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to go after God. I'm going to do all these things of God. And so he spent his entire lifetime doing what was right before God and trying to help the nation of Judah come to that place where they were worshiping God. He failed in one small aspect of his life. In that process of, of bringing reformation and renewal to Judah, he forgot to take his son with him. This is an important lesson. If you're doing something for the kingdom of God, take your kid with you so they can see what it is that the kingdom of God looks like as you do it. Hezekiah didn't do that. And so he proceeded. And, and, and his son, Manasseh, did not worship and trust God. He was at home where there was a lot of bad people hanging out. A lot of bad things going on in Jerusalem and in the palace. And so then Hezekiah passes away and he dies. And in 2 Chronicles 33 it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. And get this, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. He built, get this, here it is, this is bad. He built the pagan shrines. His father, Hezekiah, broke down. He constructed altars for the image of Baal and set up Asherah poles. He also bowed down before the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. In other words, he got into astrology and he believed that there was things going on in the heavenly realms with the stars and the moon and the planets and all the rest of that stuff and he worshipped that stuff. And, and he set up all this stuff and what he did is he took a nation that was heading in the right direction and in 55 years he turned them around and they were doing absolutely what was detestable in the sight of God. One generation. His dad was doing the right things and he didn't get taught how to do the right things and so he did the bad things. God got after Manasseh. Get this. He started at the age of 12 doing what was evil and wicked 
in the sight of God. We keep looking around at the next generation. We look at the 12 and 13 year olds and we go like, we're in deep trouble right now because look at those kids. No dang kids, we can't have anything nice around here because they break everything. <laughs> and we look at them and we're just kind of frustrated. But I want you to know, as King Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. What was will be again. And so he, here's a 12-year-old king that does wicked and evil things in the sight of God. But all the, at one point, God is so fed up with Manasseh that he, he actually sends a disciplinary act of, of great pain into Manasseh's life. And it turned his heart towards God, but it was a, too little too late because the entire nation did not follow him. And when he died, he left the kingdom in the hands of his son, Ammon. It says Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His dad was 55, and this cat's going to reign for two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He worshipped and sacrificed to all the idols his father had made. But he only was king for two years. Well, why was he king only for two years? Because he was such a wicked and evil king that his own servants plotted against him and they assassinated him. They said, this guy's so evil and wicked that we have got to kill him. The problem is when you assassinate the king, there are other people who love the king and you will forfeit your life. But they did a great service to the kingdom of Judah by getting rid of that evil and wicked man. So what happens next? After 57 years of ungodly leadership, it seems like the nation of Israel has no hope for godliness, no way to return to the ways of God in repentance and in obedience. Who's going to lead them after 55 years of just this wicked and evil things that are going on in the, in the life of God? Here's what, it's, here's what we know, is that in Chronicles 34, it says this, Josiah, that's King Ammon's son, was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. What I want you to know about Josiah, <clears throat> because the standard of being a king in Israel up to this point was King David. He was a king after God's own heart. He was a king who had worship in his heart. He was a king who, you just read some of the Psalms. Psalm 51 is a prayer of David uh, of, of seeking forgiveness. You read Psalm 139. It's a, uh, it's a prayer expressing how God knows everything about us. And then there's a prayer at the end. You just read through the Psalms and you get to see David's heart. And yet, here, here's what the Bible's saying about Josiah. Josiah was better and more spiritual and more godly than his great, great, great granddaddy David. Here is the most righteous and holy king ever to serve in Judah or in Israel. This kid, he's 
eight years old. He ascends to the throne. And he does more than... And, but here's the question. Do you remember his dad? His dad was so wicked and so evil that he was assassinated after two years in the throne. His great or his grandfather was this evil and wicked man. So who came alongside of Josiah and taught him to love God? Who was it that came and helped him? It could have been his mother, and most likely it was his mom. We just don't know much about her. But he had some relatives who were um, prophets. Zephaniah was like a cousin of his, and they grew up together. And both those boys loved God with all of their hearts. And the Bible tells us that Josiah was this kid who was after God. He wanted to honor God. He wanted to live his life for God. At eight years old, he made a decision to follow after God. And then when he turned 16, he did this amazing thing that just is absolutely mind-boggling. It says it in verse 3, During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the Lord of his ancestor David. And then in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols, and the cast images. So here he is. Here's this young kid at 16 years old. And for four years, all he does is he seeks out God. We've got to put our hope in our young people. Because when God grabs the heart of a young person like he did Josiah, there isn't anything that he can't do in the power of God. Amen? You've got to help me out a little bit here, okay? Let's work this. Because we got, we've got kids. We've got young people. They're in this church. They're a part of this church. Some of them are really young. Some of them are a little bit in middle school. We have high schoolers that attend this church. And guess what? Matt Rupel, our associate pastor, is doing an amazing job with that youth ministry. Every one of you on Wednesday should be praying for our youth group. That God would do a miracle. That God would grab the heart of some 14-year-old or 15-year-old or 13-year-old. Grab the heart of a 17-year-old and squeeze it to where what they want to do is to seek God their entire life. Because when you do that, mighty things happen. Big things happen. We're talking about a nation that was going the wrong way. A nation that was doing child sacrifice. A nation that was worshiping the stars. And now you have a 16-year-old who says, I'm going to dedicate my life to seeking God. So what does it mean to seek God? <clears throat> Excuse me. To seek God means that he is going to step in and know God's heart. He wants to hear the voice of God. He wants to be led by God. He wants God to stir something deep inside of him. And that's what this 16-year-old boy did for four years. He prayed and he sought God and he asked God for direction. And he asked God to, to move him and to help him. Because he was, he was now 16 years old, the, the king of a Listen, he didn't do anything like a lot of 16-year-olds do. I've got a lot of money. I got a lot of time on my hands. I'm going to build me a skateboard park in the palace. We're going to set up a Kool-Aid stand. Or we're going to eat hot pockets. Because I got the cash to do it. He wasn't self-absorbed. He didn't think about himself. 
He was focused. He was focused on God. He wanted God more than anything else in his life. He was not entitled. He did not take advantage of, of the position that he had, of the power of the kingship. He didn't take advantage of the wealth that was given to him. He focused his attention on God. You know, God told Jeremiah the prophet this. He said, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and wondrous things. Do you not think, because Jeremiah was a prophet during the time that Josiah was the king. Josiah hears those words, call to me. God says, call to me. Josiah's calling for four years. It's like in the, in the words of James, the half-brother of Jesus, when he said, draw near to God. In other words, come close to God. Seek God's face out. When you come close to God, when you draw near to God, God's going to come close to you. He's going to draw near to you. And when he does that, you have to have an ear attentive to the things of God because as you draw close to God, remember with Elijah, when God spoke to him, it wasn't through the wind, it wasn't through the earthquake, it wasn't through the fire, it was through the small, still voice of God that he spoke. And if your ear is not attuned to God, you will miss it. Josiah's ear, this 20-year-old kid's ear was attuned to God. God gave him a desire to change his nation from a godless nation that was just consumed with wickedness and evil to a nation who would love God as their forefathers had with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all their mind. Four years he sought God out. And the result is that God <clears throat> gave him a, a, a passion to purify the nation by destroying all the pagan shrines. He ordered that all the altars of Baal be dis demolished and that the incense, alder, uh, <clears throat> incense altars which stood above them would be broken down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who sacrificed them. He took the bones of the false prophets and he burned those bones to nothing but ash and then he spread them across the countryside so people would forget about worshiping those bones. He did the same things. He did that throughout Judah and Jerusalem. He purified the nation and the capital. He did some of the same things in the towns of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon and even Nathali. And in the regions all around, he destroyed all the pagan altars. He did everything. He crushed the idols into dust. And some of the people that were working with him, the priests and the Levites, when they found the golden idols, and, and, and Josiah said, crush them into a powder. I don't want one little iota of it left. I want it to be dust. And the, the kings and the, and the Levite, the priests and the Levites said, why don't we take them and melt them down and use the gold? He says, because that gold is tarnished and it will never be used for anything. And so he scattered it to the wind. 20 years old. 20 years old, he has a stronger backboard, backbone and greater incense, in, in, initiative to do the things of God than most men have after 50 years of walking with God. That's what happens when God gets a hold of a man's heart. Once he purified the nation from all their wickedness and all the abomination of, to God, then he reestablished the worship of God in Judah at the capital city of Jerusalem. And in the 18th year of his reign, after he had purified the land, the temple, he, re or, he ordered that the priests and the Levites 
do a repair and renovate the temple. So they went in, and what the first thing they had to do is they had to take all the trash out of the temple because, you see, it had been used for the worship of Baals and Asherah. And there was all kinds of trash and garbage and filth and wickedness. So he had the whole thing completely removed and it all burned. And then they started from scratch and they started to clean the walls and they took down the disrepaired parts and they hired craftsmen to come in and repair the temple. And in the process of repairing the temple, the, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law. This is how far removed Judah was from worshiping God. They didn't even know that the book of the law existed. And so Joshua or Josiah says to Hilkiah, read to me the book of the law. And as Hilkiah started to read the book of the law to him, he ripped his clothes and he wept before God because he had never heard the word of the Lord read to him. And so he gathered, made a day for the entire nation. The entire nation of Judah gathered in Jerusalem at the temple. All the, all the priests, all the Levites, all the elders, all the leaders of the nation, every man, woman, and child come on the Sabbath. And from morning till night, they stood and listened to the book of the law being read to them. And they made a covenant before God that God's law, His word, would rule their life and their nation. So this young man established the fact that as a nation, we seek the face of God. That's prayer. As a nation, God's word will be preeminent in our lives. It will direct our paths. It will set the course. And we will not stray from the word of God. And then the temple was rebuilt. And he reestablished the worship of God, Jehovah, Jireh, in their, in their midst. Yahweh, the one and only God, was to be worshipped in, in the rebuilding of the temple. The worship of God wasn't the music. It wasn't the singing. It wasn't the gathering. It wasn't the word of God. It wasn't the giving back to God a, a portion of what he's so generously given to us. It, it wasn't coming and spending time around all the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. It was all of that. That's what worship is. It's an entire life dedicated to knowing and have being known by God, of giving of oneself with no barriers, no bounds. I am yours, God. I will serve you faithfully, God. Take my life and I surrender all of it to you because you are faithful and you are good always. You've got to help me out a little bit. So God put into the heart of this young man, Josiah, a desire to change the nation, which he did. So how do you change your world? That's a big question. It starts in your heart, like Isaiah said. He said in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him while he is near. You will have to determine, because seeking the Lord really is coming to, to seek God through prayer. You're not going to find him under a rock. You're not going to come in here and find him sitting in a chair up here waiting for you to show up. He's not at Walmart in aisle 16. Not there. 
but he's here right now. Because he made a promise that he would be... See, God's no longer in the building. That's the beauty about what Christ did on the, on the cross. Because what Christ did on the cross ratified what God was going to do in the hearts and lives of men and women. Because in the temple, the Josiah brought the worship back to, when Christ died on the cross, when he died, it tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, that the veil that separated the commonplace from the Holy of Holies, where God's presence resided behind his big thick curtain, it says that that, that veil, that curtain, that was six inches thick, woven together, took a hundred men to hang, that that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, indicating that God has left the house. And that's why Jesus made the promise to his disciples, it's better for you that I go to see my Father, because when I go to be with my Father, I will send to you a helper, a helper who will come and be with you, and live in you, and work through you, and it's going to be greater than what I could ever do. And that's what we have. That's why we are the church. This building is the building that holds the church. You are the church. Amen? Amen. And so it goes on. What happened is, is that we've, we understand that we have to pray. We have to seek God's face while he may be found. Jeremiah said, or God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, he said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, it's not a harf. A half-hearted attempt. It's not just when I think I'm going to lay me down to sleep, I pray my, the Lord my soul to keep. That's a morbid prayer to pray. Who taught kids to pray that? Those kids are fearful to go to sleep. I don't want to die, Mommy. I'm not going to sleep. No, it's more than that. It's seeking God for all the goodness that He has in our lives. That's what God wants us to do. And the church, we have a responsibility to both individually and corporately come and seek God with our face. What does that mean? It means when you wake up in the morning and you get out of bed, the first thing you do is you pray. What do I pray when I wake up? Before your feet hit the ground. This is a prayer. Jesus, I want to thank you because this is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and I will be glad in it. Thank you for making this day that I can serve you. Before your feet hit the ground, you need to say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, before I do anything else, before I get out of bed, before I talk to my spouse, before I see my kids, before I do anything else, feed the dog or the cat, or water the cows, or do whatever it is I'm going to do, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to fill my life. I want you to fill me. I want you to fill my day. That's how we start it off. That's how we get going. Because before we do anything else, we pray first. Before the kids, your kids, go out the door to go to school, you gather them up and you come and you pray over them. You pray a blessing that God would expand their territory amongst their friends. You pray for your kids. You pray for God's presence. You pray for God's protection. You pray for their teachers. You pray for their friends. The thing you do before you let those kids go out the door is you pray first before they go do anything. Before you enter your work of place, take a couple extra minutes and sit in your car and pray for your coworkers, pray for your boss, pray for your employees. Take a moment and just ask God to do something in your day before you go in there, that God would work both in you and through you. Pray first. 
That's what we're called to do. You want to change your world? You want to change anything around you? You have got to pray first. Before you send an email, before you send a text, before you post anything on social media, pray first. Before you go and watch that movie that you know you shouldn't watch, pray first. Before you say anything to your spouse when you come home from work, you pray first. What do you think that God's calling us to do? Say it again. That's what you're supposed to do. That is how you change your world. That is what Josiah did. He sought the Lord for four years. He prayed first. We want to make a difference in this community out here. We have to do what? If we want to see your relatives come to faith in Christ, we have to do what? If you want to see the government change, you have to? Are you getting it yet? This is what God calls us to do. He says we are to pray first. Now listen, we're not just giving you lip service here. We're, all, we're offering opportunities for you to pray first. Let me tell you how we do that. First of all, on the first Saturday, we have a prayer time here where we pray for everything that goes on in this church. First Saturday. It's from 8 to 9. And then on the third Sunday at 4 o'clock, we go from four to five. And we come here and we pray for other things. We pray for the last, the least, and the lost. We pray for our hearts to be moved by God. We pray for God to come in and do a cleansing of our soul. We pray for things that are, are important, that matter to God. We want to pray for those things. So we do it on the first Saturday and we do it on the third Sunday. Not only that, but we've added a new one. And that's what I was telling you earlier. At 7.30 in the morning, you can come in here. If you have 5 or 10 or 15 or a half or 30 minutes, you come in here. You can pray. Because we have, we're praying for, for the people on this team up here. The music team. We pray for everybody that works in the kids' ministry. We pray for those people who help out in the nursery. We pray for our, our greeters for our hospitality team. We pray for our AVL team. Then we pray for everybody that comes into this room. 7.30, Sunday morning, every Sunday. That's what we're doing. We had people show up. They were praying this morning. It's awesome. But not just that. We've got other things we want to help you do. So we've got a couple of things here that are our resources. We give these away. We got these put together so we can give them to you. We want you to do this so we're not making it a cost to you. First of all, you probably have friends or relatives that don't know Jesus. This little card right here is what you put their names on. You've got a spot here on this side. You write their names on it, stick it in your Bible where you're reading, and during your prayer time, you pray for those people. Because on this side, it's God's promises of how he will reach into their hearts. Use this card. It is a tool for you to pray for the last, the least, and the lost. Then the next thing we have is we have this Pray First prayer book. There's nothing magical about this. What it is, is it's a tool to help you to do what God's calling you to do, to pray first. And so there's all kinds of prayers in here. There's, you can pray through the Lord's Prayer. You can pray the 23rd Psalm. You can pray through the Old Tabernacle. Even though we don't live under the law, there's some great things that you can learn by praying at all the stations, the seven stations of the Tabernacle from the Old Testament. So we have this little book. There's some up here. If these are all gone after church and you didn't get one, you come and see me. We got a lot more that we want to give out. We want you to have those. We want to use those because when you pray first, it makes a difference for what God's going to do. He is going to change our world. So what's the other thing that happened? Well, there's a 
process in which we have to go through because God made a promise to us in the Old Testament how we can change our community lander. And it's through this promise that he gave us that we have to step into it. And that comes from 2 Chronicles 7. This is probably one of the most famous verses out of the Old Testament on prayer. And it says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will restore their land or heal their land. That's the promise that God has made. But you can, you can see there's a condition to this. That condition is for all of you. It's for me. If my people, my people, those people who have claimed Christ as their Savior, those people who are walking with Jesus, those people who have committed their lives to be a part of the family of God that I have called and they've come and been to be a part of it, if those people who are called by my name, Jesus is the name, will humble themselves, that means we, humbling yourself means that you come to that place where you recognize that God is great and you are not. It's not self-denial. It's not beating yourself up and saying, I'm such a loser, I'm such a worm. God doesn't want you to do that because he doesn't make... He created you for his glory. But what he wants you to do is he wants you to seek his face in prayer. He wants you to, to ask for forgiveness of your sin because when you do that, then God will work through us. Unbelievably. Jesus told us that as a church, here's what we're supposed to be doing. <clears throat> we are supposed to keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. Everyone who seeks will find. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened unto you. In other words, this is persistence in prayer. That's why we do this thing every Sunday morning. That's why we do this thing on first Saturday and third Sunday. That's why we do 21 days of prayer and fasting in January. And why we do 21 days of prayer in August. is because we're going to keep asking. We're going to keep seeking. And we're going to keep... Uh, asking God to, and knocking the doors to be open because we want God to move in our community and in our church. I'm going to tell you this. This isn't for the weak and the feeble. If you're not spiritually strong, you're going to get worn out. But that's okay. You have to exercise those muscles in order to find the strength to do what God's calling you to do. The last thing I want to share with you is how do we do this? How, how in the world? What is it that I do? And so Jesus said this. He says, you have one purpose to do in this process. And he said, seek first the kingdom of God. That's what you do. You get up in the morning. Remember the prayer is to seek God's kingdom in your life, to seek God's righteousness in your life before you go anywhere else, before you say anything else, before you do anything else. Seek God first and his righteousness and then he says, all these other things in life that you are concerned about, all these things that have, have got you whirled up in here that really don't have anything to do with anything, I'll take care of those for you. But you've got to seek me first. You've got to seek righteousness first. You've got to come after me. So the way that we change our world is by, first of all, just like Josiah did, we come and we seek God. In other words, we pray first. We do what? Pray first. Then what we do is we take God's word and we make it the priority of our life. It does. You can read all the great Christian books you want to read, but they will not change your life like the Word of God will change your life. The Word of God will give you direction. It will give you purpose. It will give you understanding. It will give you clarity. It will give you freedom. It will give you a, a clean heart. 
So we make God's word the priority of our lives. And then the third thing we do is we step into worship. We worship God for who he is, for the greatness of his name. We worship him because he is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the God and creator of all things. Jesus is the, the Prince of Peace. He's the everlasting Father. Jesus is the, the Rose of Sharon. He is the Lamb that was slain. He is the Lion of Judah. That is who Jesus is. And we worship him because of his greatness in his life. And we worship him for all the great things he has done in us and for us. Amen? You want to change your world? Pray first. Make the, make the Word of God a priority in your life every day and worship God with your life. Father, I thank you that you have given us clarity on how we are to change our world. I thank you for, for this young king, Josiah, who as a young man put himself in a place to become a man of God who would lead a nation into reform and to renewal and that you, God, came and you met them where they were at and you did mighty things through a young man. And we want to be that guy, that gal. We want you to do work in our hearts and in our lives. We want you to strengthen us. We want you to give us a resolve that we will never give up, that we will always pray first, that your word will be the guiding light for our lives, and that we will worship you with our entire being. So thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for how you're changing us. We thank you for the way that you will minister to us and through us. And we pray for a harvest of righteousness. We're asking right now that you would give us in the name of Jesus lives that would come to faith in Jesus. We want to see people saved. We want the lost to be found. We want the prodigal son to come home. We want them to know you, Jesus. We want them to, to come and, and worship you and to give their lives to you because you're worth every ounce of it. So move us in that direction, we pray in your great name. Amen.